This is the Blacklist Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Franklin Leonard, founder and CEO of the Blacklist. And I'm Kate Hagan, director of community at the Blacklist. No time for small talk today, Kate. I'm very excited about this interview, and it's a long one. I was trying to remember when I met Leslie Headland, and I could not remember it because it feels like we have known each other for most of our lives. What I do remember is hanging out with her at the Nantucket Film Festival in the summer of 2015, which was odd because it felt distinctly like neither of us belonged there, which I think this interview also will indicate, but I couldn't be a bigger fan of hers. I mean, Russian Doll, obviously, but Bachelorette too. She's just the best. It's a great conversation, and we're going to dig in with Leslie on some really interesting topics. I'm a big Stephen King fan, and I'm a big fan of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, And Leslie has a read on The Shining that I have never heard anyone else talk about and sent me down a whole rabbit hole after our conversation that I thought was fascinating. We're also going to dig into her time as a staff writer on Terriers, the brilliant but canceled FX series. We're going to talk about traditionally masculine art and the Western canon and how that tends to be dominated by cishet white males. It's a really fascinating conversation and it culminates with us getting to talk about Russian Doll, which feels like a real synthesis of everything that Leslie has done throughout her career as a playwright, screenwriter, and director. And it includes a conversation Kate instigated about the Twitter thread. Uh, If you know, you know. And if you don't, you'll find out in this conversation. So without further ado, Leslie Hedlund. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. We love to open every conversation by asking the same question, which is, can you remember the first movie you saw in a movie theater? I mean, the movie I remember seeing is The Little Mermaid. Like, I remember being there and seeing it. My mom ha- tells a very famous story of me seeing E.T. with her, you know, like in the theater. But I don't remember seeing E.T. What's the story, though? Especially if it's a famous oh, story. it's not famous. I guess I shouldn't have said that. I just mean, like, it's one of those, like, I took you... This, so this is my mom's version of reality, is like, I took you to see E.T., and when you looked at the screen, I knew you were going to be a writer. I knew you were going to be blah, blah, You know, and I'm like, I don't remember that ever happening, but, <laughs> you know, I, I, I believe you. Like, that sounds fun. You but know, was The Little Mermaid as... the one where you were like, I'm going to be a writer? No, the movie that's kind of more, this is not a good look anymore, but it's the truth. Also, my cat is just making a mess over here. So I'm so sorry if you can hear that. But we welcome additional guests on the podcast always. Indeed. Yeah. We've had kids. Bisexual. We've had this is cats. We've got bisexual it's lighting. Bisexual lighting and a cat. I don't, I don't know how much more cliched it gets. Um. So when I was little, uh, and this was definitely before The Little Mermaid came out, but we, we didn't really go to the movies very often when I was younger. We would watch them a lot at home. But one thing that I really remember, like it was yesterday, is that when I was up on the top bunk of my bedroom, I could see my mo- what my mom and dad were watching, like through the door. So I would I would stay up really late watching the movie that they were watching. But I couldn't hear <laughs> the movie, really. Like, I could hear a little bit, and, like, my mom and dad would laugh at stuff, and I kind of hear that. But I couldn't really follow the movie beyond just images. And the movie that really blew my fucking mind was Woody Allen's Love and Death. It just blew my mind. I was just like, what am I watching? Like, <laughs> this is awesome. You know, like, I thought it was it was, like, both slapstick and 
obviously very dark and very, and like, you know, some violence and some other things that I wasn't supposed to be watching. But that, I don't know if that was the movie that made me want to be a writer, but that was definitely the movie that was like, oh, how shit. How old were you at this point? Like when you saw Love and Death? Oh, this is like six or seven. But, but at this point, you're like staying six, up. You're six. like watching your parents' television through the like yeah. little window that's on those like interior house doors. And just the imagery, not the, I mean, that. Couldn't hear couldn't tell you what the movie was about. Had no idea. Like, but had transfixed. No idea. But completely transfixed. Couldn't. I just remember being up, like, all night after that. Just thinking about, like, the go. I could hear the music. Like, I could hear, like, the Prokofiev. And there were, like, the, the ghost chasing him and him dancing with the ghost. And, like, you know, I was just, like, lying in bed thinking about it and just thinking that is so cool. Like, oh, that's so cool. You know, <laughs> that that's, is not the sound. That is not Sleeping Beauty. You know what I mean? Like, right. that is not The Wizard of Oz. What the fuck is that? I want more of whatever Something's that Something's going on here know? that I want more of. <laughs> something. <laughs> whatever it is, bring it on. I feel like there's something that happens to you when you, like, sneak when you're watching something that your parents are watching. Even if you only catch, like, 30 seconds of it, it's just, like, burned onto your brain in a way that like if you could seek it out and watch it for yourself it would be like well who cares um but it's like the illicit thrill of it uh do you remember anything else from that period that you were able to sort of see through the bedroom window well a thing that this wasn't through the bed through the window but the thing that was like that was batman that, mm. that that was the thing. That was the thing that my mom was like, "Yeah, you can watch some." Oh, don't you can't watch that. You know, like, this is the Michael, like, this is the Michael was, like, Keaton Batman, right? Michael Keaton Batman. Yeah. So I watched like the first, maybe uh, the first little bit of it, and then I don't know. Jack Nicholson kills somebody, and my mom was like, "Get out of here," you know. Which of course is always worse than just like you know, <laughs> it's just like your brain creates something so much worse than oh, yeah. than what you're watching. But that that's one that I remember during that time. And then my mom, so my mom and dad both really, really loved old movies. And and I do remember watching, they finally at some point realized that I was staying up on the bunk bed watching. And so after a while, they kind of just let me stay there because they figured I'd just fall asleep if I was watching the movie. Like I, it wouldn't, it would no longer be an illicit thing, but I still would sit there and watch all the movies. <laughs> so I watched like, like they're you know, passed I watching, out and you're like watching Antonio. They're passed out. <laughs> I'm watching Bridge on the River Kwai. They're like. <laughs> Like, I remember my dad, I was really, I really remember asking my dad, like, when they put Alec Guinness in the tin, like, uh, box thing, that the, like, the, you know, solitary confinement thing, like, asking him to explain it to me and being like, what are they putting him in? And they, my poor dad was like, so he's a prisoner of war and, you know, <laughs> trying to walk through, like, the Geneva Conventions uh, with me or something, you know, and I'm like, what? Like, you know, it's like one like, of those moments that- as a parent where you're like. Oh, yeah, this might have been a bad decision. <laughs> this might have been a bad decision. Yeah. Like, my parents, that was all them letting me watch movies was going, oh, oh, we probably <laughs> shouldn't, probably shouldn't have shown her that. But after a while, it kind of became like a, a a a running gag with me and my parents. Like, once I got a little older, like, I got to, like, sixth, seventh grade, eighth grade, like, middle school, like, if they were watching something that they thought I would like, they'd be like, come in here. <laughs> so that's how I watched like D.A. Pettibaker movies, you oh, know, wow. like the the Don't Look Back and yeah. and uh, the company, the original company soundtrack recording. Um, that's how I was introduced to Nichols and May was that was like, you know, my parents just going a lot of those old actually not even so many movies as much as like those old PBS specials that like, you know, before YouTube you didn't know these things existed. You know, you'd have to go to like museums of like TV and radio to watch Dick Cavett, you know, episodes and, and Elaine May and Mike Nichols bits and stuff. So we're like Liza Minnelli performing, you know, like it, it just was like a lot of stuff that they were like, you should come and see, you should come and see this, you know, like you'll like this, you'll like this, you know? Um, so I think they kind of fostered over that time period of like, from me being like up in my little, that's amazing. Bunk bed to being like a teenager. They were like, oh, Leslie really likes movie stuff, you know. But was there a moment for you where you were like, wait a minute, this is what I'm going to do? Oh, that was The Shining. That was The Shining. Really? That was in I was in school. Yeah, I was in school for um I was in school for theater at at Tisch. Right. 
and didn't really know what I wanted to do. I had honestly just gotten into Tish, uh, into the acting, one of the acting studios that actually specialized in directing theater as well as design. So it was technically, you know, like my BFA is in drama, but like you could do acting or you could do these other things. And I was pursuing uh, design and directing there because I was like, I'm not going to be an actor. <laughs> Be an actor, um, but did you have to audition to get in though? But I had to were audition. You, were, to you get a, in. were you a high school actor? I was a high school actor. That was my thing. Was I was a big high school actor, big pothead. You know, loved combo. it. You know, directed Little Shop of Horrors and was like, you know, drunk with power the whole time. <laughs> it's like, so when I got to college, I was like, I guess I'll just keep doing this, you know, like, I guess right. I'll, you know, and my, my, you know, it was the, one of those things where my grades weren't that great. So, you know, getting into a prestigious theater conservatory, like that was a better chance than like a highly rated school. You know, it was right. like, you have so many theater credits and you've done all the, this theater, you've directed theater, like you should at least like audition. So I auditioned with Oh my god! I've forgotten the song. I had to sing some songs. I can't remember oh, wow. the songs. So it was a musical theater. One of them was a Sondheim song, though. Well, yeah, I'm yeah just picturing Lady Bird at this point. The auditions in Lady Bird. Oh, is where very yeah. Lady Bird. That's I really related with that movie because I was like, that's you know, with the Catholic schoolgirl skirt and the fucking, you know, just like being a dick to everybody, you know. Except I was like trying to make out with all the girls, and you know. Being mildly successful, <laughs> so also making out with all the boys, you know. But anyway, like, but but my monologue. This was my fun part. Yeah. Again, not a good look. But my monologue was uh, the opening monologue to Annie Hall, which I spliced together with the end of the movie. And and so I sang these like crazy, like you know, musical theater pieces because I remember them commenting like you shouldn't ever audition <laughs> with those, you know, like. And then ended it with, like, a crazy-ass, like, didn't do the gender switch at all with Annie Hall. It just did Annie Hall. And everyone was like, what is happening? So it was all bizarre. But I got on a tangent. Basically, I get into theater school by the skin of my teeth. I'm there. I'm hanging out. I'm smoking some pot with some friends. They put on the – they're like, have you seen The Shining? I think it's Halloween. They're like, you want to have, have you seen The Shining? I was like, no. I watched The Shining, and I'm like, this is what I'm going to do with the rest of my fucking life. This is unbelievable. I couldn't believe what I was saying. I was just like – I cannot believe that this is a thing that exists. Like, it's not a perfect movie by any, you know, stretch of the imagination, but it's my movie, if that makes sense. Like, it's a movie that just completely touched, you know, my present, past, and future self. And I was, I could not shake that movie for, you know, I bought it immediately. I watched it almost every day. I just couldn't get enough of it. It was so meticulously put together and perfection and all the things I just, I, and, and I just thought somehow I'm going to do this. Somehow I'm going to make this happen for myself. I don't know how, but I'm going to do it. Was there, I mean, the meticulousness, the sort of precision, I mean, those are sort of Kubrick's hallmarks. I'm just curious if in retrospect, is there, is there something about that movie where, where you're like, this was the thing that drew me in or was it just sort of alchemy? And it was like, Boom, this changes everything. I think that, because I think it's a really good question, actually, because I think a lot of Kubrick acolytes uh, uh, usually tend toward the, you know, the technical aspects of his filmmaking right, yeah. and not always the, you know, emotional. But to me, the film is his emo most, to me, it's his most emotional movie. Yeah, for Like, sure. it is a movie that is meant to literally elicit not... Um, wonder, but fear, you know, like it right. is actually supposed, like Stephen King very famously said, I think Stanley Kubrick is trying to hurt people with this movie, you know, like, and I think he was right. I think he was trying, I think he was trying to psychologically hurt people. And uh, for whatever reason that, that hurt was like, it was an opposite for me, you know, like I, I felt that fear and I thought more, you know, like more right. of that, more of that feeling, get other people to feel that way. And I think if I had to more specifically answer your question, the more I've thought about it in hindsight, and especially working on Russian Doll, I realized that the image, the ending kind of, not the end-to-end -end image, but the ending of Jack running after Danny in the, in the um, hedge maze, mm -hmm. 
in the snow. To me, and the whole movie leads up to this moment, but right. to me, that is life. Life is older you tracking down younger you to murder you senseless, to murder him senselessly, you know, like, and younger you has to survive somehow. Like younger you has to be like, I have to outsmart, you know, the addict, the devil, the abuser, the, you know, all of those like very intense sides, which is why I get why, I hope you're prepared to talk about The Shining this entire podcast, <laughs> but again, it's my movie. So I'm like, I'll talk about it forever, but- What's the problem? It's one of the reasons why, I, sorry. No, just what's the problem? We will gladly go all in on The Shining. Oh, okay, good. Well, it's yeah. a deep dive. It's a deep dive. It's happening. But it's why I understand why Stephen King was so kind of uh, turned off by the movie because the movie does not shy away from how evil we are. You know, like it, it does not have that moment, spoiler alert, that happens in the book where Jack says, run, Danny, I love you. You know, like, uh, you know, I don't I don't want to kill you. Like, I can't control this thing inside me. But in this moment of love, I can control it to let you go. I think Kubrick in his kind of, you know, well-placed cynicism you know, was like, sometimes we're, we, you know, that, that monster doesn't let up. That monster comes after you and doesn't stop. And so you got to survive and you got to figure out how to survive. And it is by the skin of your teeth and it is, you know, random whether or not it happens, but the idle writer, the, the alcoholic in recovery, you know what I mean? Like all of that, that happens with Jack leading up to that moment. And now every time I work on something, I feel like not, no, so sorry, I shouldn't say every time, but especially when we were working on Russian Doll, I was like, this image has really stuck with me my whole life of just like, um, of Jack and Danny and how that is, uh, I think, a really beautiful representation of this, of the psyche um, as that entire, you know, as that entire um, hotel is. Oh my God! Stop me! Someone. Well, all right, all right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump in. What's amazing is is that you literally predicted and answered our second to last question already. So we may have to come back to that at some point. But uh, and I think I may, you may have already answered our next question, which is tell us about the strangest way you've ever watched a movie, which I suspect will be on the top bunk of your childhood bed through a narrow window watching your parents' movies. Yeah. But if you've got something better, and knowing you, you might lay it on us. No, that's pretty weird. I mean, I think uh, uh, like in in the way to watch it, you know, like that's definitely like it's kind of, and I can't think of a better kind of film nerd way to watch a movie. You know, where you're just like, I'm so desperate to watch the movie that I'm gonna, <laughs> you know, hide up here. I was gonna say too. I feel like Stoned on Halloween is the absolute best way to see The Shining for the first time. But beyond that, what is your sort of ideal vibe on going to the movies and seeing a movie at home? Where are you sitting? What's the snack situation? Do you like being by yourself? Ooh. Going with friends? Truly, I, I have two kind of answers. It's a two answer, two part answer. If it's a movie that's in my top ten, top twenty, then the best thing is like a bunch of Lacroix, like alone. A hundred percent alone and watching it on my, you know, system at home, this sounds not great, but it doesn't really matter that much. And just like really, you know, taking in and being able to, cause everything that's on my top 10, I've seen dozens of times. So I know it by heart. So if I watch Zodiac, like if I want to, my wife's like, let's watch Zodiac while we're quarantining. And I'm like, I don't want to watch Zodiac with you. And she's like, why? And I'm like, cause I want to be able to say all the lines to Zodiac while I'm watching it. Like, I don't want to sit there while someone else is trying to like take in the story. Like, you know, like, I just want to like be in Zodiac for three hours, you know, like, and then I would like to restart it and start watching it again. Like, that's another thing that I would like to do. You know, like I do that with Barry Lyndon once a year. I usually have like a Barry Lyndon day where I just watch Barry Lyndon like three times in a row and just like kind of roll around in Barry Lyndon for a little bit. Like, I just love that. And it's like that in LaCroix, basically. Just. Yeah. And then make sure there's enough stuff. You know what I mean? Like I need the sustenance, blah, blah, blah. But I don't really like need the snacks and stuff unless I'm out. You know, I love the snacks out. I love the popcorn at Alamo. You know, I love going to Alamo for new movies. I like seeing them that first weekend. I love seeing them with friends. Um, I like their rowdy screenings. I went to one of their rowdy screenings. It was real fun with for cats. Um I don't know if that how often they do that, but I did that once and it was like, you know, filling my Rocky Horror vibes, you know. It was like, oh yeah, this is fun. I forgot I forgot we did this. 
Yeah, Cats is definitely the new Rocky Horror. It's so exciting that we like have a new cult movie to get really excited <gasps> oh, about. Thank God. Yeah. Thank God. Thank God. I was really worried about us there for a second. <laughs> but do we think do we think it's gonna be as pr- like in thirty years are people gonna be gathering on Friday or Saturday night like dressed up to go see Cats? Like it, it seems no. possible. It, it, see, I'm gonna I disagree. Know. I think it feels yeah. possible to me. I don't know. The only reason I've said no so quickly is because there's a humorlessness to cats, especially when it comes to to gender and and sexuality in a way that I feel like that in a way that I feel like if they had leaned into that a little bit more, like if all the cats were gay, like they should have been, like they were in 1981. I don't know. You know, like, I don't know. But, you know, if I just wish they'd kind of leaned into it. I think Tom Hooper, bless him, was just so the wrong person to do that. Like, I wish they'd gotten someone just insane. Do you know what I mean? Like, he just seemed like he was trying a little too hard to make it like a believable movie. <laughs> like, it's just like, and then like applied a lot of like Les Miserables situations to it. Like, let's have some like practical sets. It's like, <laughs> we're in cats, dude. Like, it's fine. Throw a green screen at everything. We don't care. Just have, but there's a lot of like no homo moments in it. Did you notice that, Kate? Like, there's yeah, a lot of like it's a it's a fascinating curio. Like, I I I agree that I don't know that it's going to inspire the same level of passion of Rocky Horror. Like, you're not going to have people who like have their coming out moment from Cats or like are like, oh, maybe I would right. like to like, fuck with gender a little bit. But I do think you're going to get yeah. people at the sort of rowdy screenings because it is one of those things that you're just like, you yes. have to see it. Like, it cannot be described to you adequately. And they are fun. And they're, those rowdy screenings are fun. Like, they are fun. You get to yell things, which is fun. But I think it is a little bit more like they – am I moving around too much, by the way, or are you good? No, you're good. You're good. Okay. She's giving me thumbs up. Okay. No, those yeah, – I, I think that's the only reason I mean I don't think that – like, for example, like Susan Sarandon very famously once said, like, you know, I've done all this stuff. I've won an Oscar. But the thing that's going to be in the time capsule is is Rocky Horror. Like, she's like, that's the thing that I've that that, you know, it doesn't matter what I do. Like, there is no, I'm never going to do anything that makes the type of impact that that movie made on pop culture. And I think that while Cats, I think, is like a really we're so especially now, you know, like I think once we come out of this, we're going to be so desperate for you know, human connection yeah. and like just doing things together that I think you're right. There's a chance that something that we can all agree sucks will bring <laughs> us all together. I'm trying to think if there's anybody from that cast for whom uh, cats will be the lead in their obituary. And the only person I can think of is Jason Derulo. I mean, uh, yes, <laughs> by the way, kind of my favorite part of the movie, P.S. I, I kind of was like, I mean, again, they had this like moment where he was like, Victoria. And I was like, no, 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 please. <laughs> like, why are all these women here? Like, you know, have you guys seen cats? Like, <laughs> like it's Mr. Mistopheles. I was like, no, no, no. Like, this is like, let them do their thing. Let them be what they are. You know, like, if that's why I think everyone loves Judy Dench so much in it, because I think she's the one that's like, I get it. I want to fuck everything. I'm a cat. Let's do this. Which is <laughs> ironic know? on some level that she's the one of all the people in that movie who were who's like, <laughs> oh, I know, I know what this is. I love this. Let me yeah. put on my cat fur coat while I'm still a cat <laughs> and, and and make this work. Very bizarre. It's so good. It's so it's so good, bad, and bad good. It's funny. I, I watched house. Cats, and I immediately put on Rocky Horror because I was like, we need to cleanse this palette. We need to, like, move yeah. on from this Cats experience. I want to steer us back to some questions. Your first four ways in, for rate. Nah, I'm going to take that again. Uh, your first. My first four way. <laughs> let me tell you. It was 19. 19- <laughs> Um, that's a different podcast, but we welcome that story as well. Uh, your first forays into play into narrative were in playwriting with the seven deadly sins cycle, which eventually led to the absolutely wonderful bachelorette, which is the entry for gluttony as well as assistance, which is a play you wrote about the perils of being a Hollywood assistant. But I'm curious, as you made that transition from playwriting to screenwriting, did your process change at all? What was the most challenging thing in sort of moving from a theater world to a cinematic world. Well, there's a really good quote that is not mine, but I can't remember who said it. And I'm a little worried it's David Mamet. So I'm just going to take credit for it, Um, which is that in plays, uh, 
um, you're, the audience is wondering what's happening now. And in movies, they're wondering what's going to happen next. Like there's something that, and I didn't, I would say that not in the writing of Bachelorette, but actually in the editing of Bachelorette was when I realized this. It was much more like the scenes, in my opinion, were working on such a deep character level. Um, and they were funny and they were well crafted. They were well acted. They were well shot. Like, you know, I was super happy. Um, and then we we did like a little friends and family screening. We screened it at Sundance, like blah, blah, blah. And I just started to notice like I, I, when I watched it with an audience, I could feel the audience be like, we get it. You know, like you could almost feel that click happen of just like, yeah, we know. Like, <laughs> and I was like, oh, we should, we got to cut out of this scene faster. Like, you know, it just, I, the I don't know what it is. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because in theater, you have to do the suspension of disbelief. You have to be like, I am in a room with these people and these other people around me are not real, you know? And so you're a little bit more present in the action um, than you would be if you were in a darkened movie theater and you don't have to do that suspension of disbelief because the camera is basically going, this is happening, this is happening in real time. And so the audience was consuming the plot so quickly that I, you know, these this, the pace of the movie was incredibly slow uh, in the first few cuts of it. Even the Sundance cut, I think, you know, it played fine, but it was, I think it was very, you know, I would say like 65% of it was great. And then the rest of it was like, girl, nobody cares. The scene's over, you know, like, so that was, I think the biggest challenge. And for me, it was not something that I could really adjust in my writing until I had, I had gotten in there and really had the experience of working closely with an editor and going, you know, Wyatt Smith who cut, um, well, Jeffrey Wolf cut the movie, but then uh, Wyatt Smith did the recut with me. And uh, I just want to give him a shout out. He's fucking amazing. So, and now he's huge. He's like Dr. Strange. It's like, we can't get, I'm, we're never going to work together again. So I'll take this time to suck up to him and maybe get him to work with me. But no, but he was amazing because he really let me have it. You know, like he was like, this is the, you know, he, 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 it's almost like he forgot I was also the writer of the movie. Mm. So he would say like, yeah, this part's boring. Like this part we already know, like this part, blah, blah. And I was like, <laughs> you can't see me. It's an, it's an audio medium. I made a face that was like, I can't believe he's killing all my darlings, like without asking me basically. And, uh, and I really had to put that hat on of just like, but now that I've moved into writing more and more for the screen and popping back and forth to do some more plays and stuff, I, I don't, I don't think about it that often in, ter in terms of what needs to be cut. You know, I just kind of go like, yeah, let's just get rid of it. It's not working. Let's move on. You know, like, um, trying to think of an example, but that that was the hardest thing, I think, the hardest change. The brilliant but canceled Terriers was your first staff writing job. And to me, that's one of those deceptively macho pieces of entertainment that actually gets at some really interesting truths about American masculinity. And I feel like a lot of times on Twitter, you're really challenging this idea of the male cinematic canon. Why is it important to you to keep pushing people's thinking on what we consider great art? Oh, such a good question. I, I truly want to say, like, listen, Nothing made me sadder than when I realized I like wasn't a male filmmaker. Do you know what I mean? Like it's like all I had done was was worshipped male male filmmaker, filmmakers my whole life. You know, like 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 I said, my first real kind of aha moment was Woody Allen. Sadly, you know, like it was like my first like real deep love was was Stanley Kubrick. Like you know, um, uh, especially the guys. You know, I came of age in the '90s of so like the Soderberghs, the Tarantinos, the fucking. P.T. Andersons, the Wes Andersons, the the o, the o. Russells, like these are the guys that I was like, oh my God, you know, I cannot wait to have a career like this. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, I can't wait to get in there, you know? And then um, I started working and I was like, oh, 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 okay, okay. Just hadn't noticed none of these were women. You know what I mean? Like, I just hadn't noticed that really. And now I'm realizing that, oh, okay, okay. I guess I'm, I see. Okay. So these guys aren't leaving. So these guys are just going to stay here in limited release, clogging that up until, you know, the end of time. And we're all going to have to figure out some other way of getting our work out there. You know, thank God for streaming and VOD and all those other things. But, um, and I just kind of went, oh, I see. So, you know, 
this is actually a system that is kind of set up to exclude uh, women and people of color and especially the combination of that, women women of color and LGBTQ and LGBTQ women of color. You know, like, it's just like, it gets worse and worse and worse. And so when I'm dicking around on Twitter, you know, the concept is not to be like contrary or to like fuck with people or like whatever. I just think that my concept of a great director I didn't even think about the fact that they were all white men. I just didn't even think about it. I just was thinking, oh my God, they're just so amazing. They're so, so, so amazing. And then I realized like, oh, that's because that's the only thing I've been exposed to because that's the most popular thing. Okay, why is that the most popular thing now that I'm kind of like, you know, seeing how the sausage is made? Well, because that concept of a male genius who is, you know, and and Terriers is actually a really great example because the guy that created Terriers, both guys that created Terriers, Ted Griffin and Sean Ryan, are actually excellent examples of like kind of the antithesis of this, right? Which is like the deceptively macho creators. Like they aren't, you know, Vince Gilligan, also deceptively macho. Like, you know, like these are all guys that kind of, they're not really going in there. They're all still white guys, but they're not, they're not going in there with this like swagger of, and this is how it is, you know, like they're going in there with, I want to take a look at what, is rewarded in our society and what's kind of considered to be, you know, male, masculine, strong, all of those kinds of things, and then kind of undercut them. I mean, I think The Shield does that brilliantly. Like, it's almost like if The Wire is the is the police show to kind of end all police shows, I think the, that The Shield is almost, in my opinion, I mean, I know this is very contrary, but I think there is a salaciousness and a campiness to the prestige TV anti-hero that's completely deconstructed by that show. And the fact that that show ends on a much more succinct note than The Sopranos or Mad Men, in my opinion, is telling of how well done that takedown was. You know, the fact that, well, I won't spoil The Shield if you're going to watch it, but, you know, I think if you can get on board with the fact that you're watching something that was built during a time of of commercial act breaks and you can really get into the FXness, for lack of a better word, of that show, yeah. you're in for such a treat with and how the it early ends, you know, like, and, now that I think about it. Right, like Ooh, it, it, yeah, it, that was that the Kurt big, Sutter, yeah. that Kurt Sutter, Sean Ryan. I mean, oh. I also think it's really important Ooh. that people. Ryan Murphy was still around. Ryan then Murphy too. was still on FX then. I mean, what's what's wild about the Shield? Thinking about it in retrospect, was we also forget that like before that, Michael Chiklis was the commish, and it was a reintroduction of him to the world yep. that was sort of mind-boggling at the time. Yeah. It actually did a lot of stuff. Now, I'm not saying, you know, whatever. But what I loved about working on that show was that I got to kind of see the generation that the Vince Gilligans came from. Mm. Meaning, like, you know, these were guys that were not trying to be Quentin Tarantino. And they were also not trying to be Vince Gilligan. Do you know what I mean? Like, there was no kind of all-seeing, all-knowing creator. These were guys that worked on Angel, yeah. And the X-Files. And like, you know Yeah, I mean, I mean the like, closest and, that would have existed you know, during that era would have been David Chase off of The Sopranos. Would but be, he's the, but he's be, the, you know, he's Matt, the only one at that point. But he was the yeah. only one. He was the only one. And he was pretty recent, I think, at that point. At Well, at least in, you know, 2009, 2010, which is when I was writing yeah. on that show. You know? And so when you look at something like The Shield, you're actually seeing, like you said, the commish. Like, you're seeing that Brian Cranston now is going to right. be, you know, Scarface. Right. Do you know what I mean? Concept. That now is, like, normal. Like, you know, like, I can pitch, like, you know, I'm going to be like, it's Kyle Chandler, but he's a serial killer. And everyone's like, yes! <laughs> exactly. You know, like, it's just like... They're like, more of that, please. Right. You know, like, it's Barney like, the you know, dinosaur, everybody. but he's a sociopath. <laughs> but he's a sociopath, and here's why, and like, blah, blah, blah. And then what's interesting is that, you know, that all gets kind of taken over by, to go all the way back to your, to go all the way um, back to your, so sorry, my phone's never on, and I just Wait, but what was the, What was okay, the ringtone, okay. though? It was the, the Mystery Science Theater 3000 yes. theme song. That is, we're I mean, keeping that in. That's amazing. Yeah. Please keep it in. Yeah. It's the, the, old, the old school one. The old school one. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? 
Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Um, girl, it's crazy. Uh, so anyway, sorry to bring this all the way back around to like, you know, deceptively macho, like blah, blah. I do think that at some point when things become you know, popular things start to push through pop culture. They start to permeate the way that we're watching things and the way that we create. There's this concept that, you know, the strongest, loudest voice in the room wins, right? And that is usually, you know, a white person and usually a white male person, you know? And so I think that while I would love to operate under the concept that everybody's talented and, you know, the cream rises to the top and so on and so forth. I think that people have just been operating under the idea that vulnerability is a bad thing. Women have vulnerability, you know, like power is a thing that we need to have in our creator. People who are disenfranchised don't have power. You know, like it's just this like weird, um, what's it called? The free association that people are doing in their minds. And sometimes it's, sometimes it's on purpose. And sometimes I think it's really just, I don't even realize I'm doing it when I'm doing it. You know, I just had a call for something and I realized the whole time I kept addressing the the man, like I just kept addressing the man in the phone call. And so finally I was like, I'm so sorry, Christine, uh, what do you think about that? You know, like, it's just like, I just kept kind of just gravitating towards dad, dad, dad'll give me the job. Like, you know, it's like, it just, it's it's a paradigm shift that we just have to lean harder into changing, like just at least for a little bit, you know, like, but yeah, nothing surprised me more that I wasn't a male filmmaker. I was so sad about that when I realized. Do you remember the first time you felt like you saw yourself on screen? Like the moment of like, oh shit, that's me. Or, and, and this has been actually really interesting because a lot of people have never had that moment necessarily. And I'm curious, like, you know. I, I'm so sorry. The first thing I thought of, this is crazy, but it's true. The first thing I thought of was Isla Fisher in Wedding Crashers. I, I truly was like, I, I just thought, this is me. Like I was like, you know, that girl that's like, I was always drunk. I was always like fucking, you know, like I was this insane person. And then, you know, I was like a virgin. You know, and everyone was like, what? Like, what? You know, it was just like there, I was, the, it was this, you know, I'm just saying these things because I want you to like me. You know, like it, there was something about her in that movie that I do think is kind of like the flip, the other side of the, the dark side of the coin of that character is, is Katie in Bachelorette, which is why I was so happy that she would she agree to do the movie because I felt like that's the only person that should play that part. You know, like weirdly, that was the first thing I thought when you said that. I was like, I, I really, there was something that was, there was something that was just kind of like, like, the movie didn't punish her. Like, I, I know it's a, a problematic movie and it's a problematic character, but, like, there was something about, you know, that third act reveal that she was still dating Vince that, like, I just thought was so kind of fun and just, like, I, I was just, like, I kind of like that there's this, like, yeah, she's, like, a virgin and, like, she's, I put quotes around that and, like, you know, she's kind of this, like, crazy person but like there's this real like affection for this character and she's not being like tossed out of the side of the car right. you know like she's not Lara Flynn Boyle in Wayne's World you know what I mean like right. where it's like um you know you're the butt of this joke it's like she's the butt of the joke but she's also the sex the 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 sex object and the love interest which you know I mean that's still not great but in 2000 whatever that was kind of the first time I'd really seen my type of girl on screen you know, even if she was a bit sanitized and my best friend's wedding as well. My best friend's wedding was another one where I was like, 
that's me. You know, <laughs> she's like, I'm going to go ruin this guy's wedding. I was like, same, you know, <laughs> like, where is it? Would you like me to show up? And she's like smoking the whole movie. I was like, do you need any help? Like what, what's going on? Kind of in that same vein of these sort of complicated, you know, quote unquote, unlikable female characters. One of my favorite things that happened on film Twitter in the entirety of 2019 was a brilliant thread you did talking about Travis Bickle and Taxi Driver and Lee Holloway in Secretary, one of my favorite movies. If you've not read this thread, I highly recommend it. Leslie goes into some incredible depth and I've seen both of those movies many times and Leslie touches on things that I had not even noticed, but it does sort of feel... <laughs> I, just, Go ahead, I remember starting and being like, oh, this is going to be a thing. <laughs> like, I, remember, like, I remember, like, I think it was like, I'm about, I can't even remember what the first tweet was, but I just remember seeing it and being like, I'm going to come back and sit, check on this in about two hours. And I feel like film Twitter yeah, is going to be on fire. You were, like, I, you were like, I can't actually follow this in real yeah, time because no. it's going to get so deep and yeah. nerdy that it, I'm just going to have to like, I do remember like, like dissect, you know, just, being like, yeah, this is fun for everybody. Anyway, Kate, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> but it does, it feels like we're finally getting to a moment where we're starting to turn the tide on this idea of the likeable, likeable female protagonist. And we're starting to actually see some female anti-heroines. Besides Lee, who has inspired you through the history? And it can be movies, television, theater, great anti-heroines or sort of these unlikable female characters. Who have you been most inspired by? Well, you know, what's interesting is that like that particular archetype is one, of course, that I'm super attracted to because I'm a complicated female character. You know, like I don't, you know, and I don't think that, you know, I need to be written by a female or, or written by a male to like, you know, I don't think it's that. I think it's what I think, where I think we start to get into trouble, and this is what I was kind of trying to get at in that thread, is that there's a reason taxi driver is taxi driver. Do you know what I mean? Like, and secretary is secretary, you know, like, it's like, and, and part of it is that complicated female characters are usually regulated to a particular genre that is not considered to be prestige you know what I mean? And this has been true forever. I mean, you know, you look at something like, you know, you get something like um, uh, like melodrama, for example, like Douglas Sirk, Almodovar, these directors that are really taking a look at the inner life of women and how complicated it is and what they are up against and the Mildred Pierces and the, or if you go, or if you want to go into like screwball comedy, like the Lady Eves, the bringing up babies, like the, you know, even the Philadelphia story is a bit of that. Like, We've always had them. The issue is, is that they get dropped into these quote unquote romantic comedies, quote unquote melodramas, quote unquote, like basically these genres that, sorry, like not to call them out, but a lot of critics basically go, this is not a genre that deserves as much attention as a biopic, a historical drama, a gritty drama, a drama with a lot of violence in it, like whatever, I don't know. You know, like I'm not a fucking, I'm not, I don't know enough. So that being said, I would say there's an enormous list, you know, like probably my favorite one is, is, um, oh gosh, I've forgotten her last name now, but Judy in, um, in What's Up Doc. Like that's my favorite complicated, messy, ridiculous female character. Like she is just, she is Bugs Bunny. I mean, like, literally, that's why it's called What's Up Top. She's, like, literally a cartoon character with, with, how, with how much wreckage she causes. And yet she's still sexual. She's still fun. You know, she's flawed. She ruins people's lives, but they still love her. Like, there's this push and pull back and forth. And that was a movie that I saw with my parents that my parents showed me. They were like, you'll probably like this movie. They were right. You know, but then, you know, there's an interesting, it's just, to me, it's just kind of interesting, like, why something like, you know, like, I'm going on a little bit of a tangent, sorry. But but the going back to the, the thread about that stuff, it's like, look at something like The Heartbreak Kid versus The Graduate. Like, that's another one you could do. It's it's almost the same story. Do you know what I mean? It's one of them is done by Nichols, I mean, Nichols M.A. One of them is done by Mike Nichols, and one of them is done by Elaine May. Do you know what I mean? Like, but there's... But and and they're both very very successful for different reasons. But why is one part of popular culture in an indelible way, and one of them is not? And I think a lot of people would say, well, Cream rises to the top. Graduate must just be a better movie. Maybe it's the soundtrack, so on and so forth. But I would argue that there's a certain amount of 
um, misogynistic, I would say misogyny kind of thrown Mrs. Robinson's way in that movie in a way that makes you feel like good and makes you, or it doesn't make you feel good, but it's, it makes you feel validated in rejecting an older generation, which was the whole point of that movie and about when it came out and all those kinds of things in the same way the taxi driver was like, Hey, do you hate your job? So does everybody else. It's totally fine to blow up a building, you know, like it's like, so there's this thing that happens where most messages with most movies, the most successfully pop culturally, the, the ones that resonate the most with pop culture end up being the ones that are saying to a certain group of people, the way you feel, you should keep feeling that way. And don't worry, you're right. Do you know what I mean? Like, you are correct. You know, as much as you might want to fuck her mom, you actually want to be with the daughter. And that's fine. You're allowed to have that. Do you know what I mean? Like, so I don't think the filmmakers thought that. I'm not necessarily saying that, like, every, you know, there's some kind of conspiracy going on. I just mean that, like, when you when it comes to one of the most beautiful, complicated female characters of all time, Mrs. Robinson, the idea that she is not the hero of that movie is something that never made sense to me. Like, as I'm watching it, I'm like, I care about her. All I care, when she's like, you know, when he's like, well, what did you, what did you study? And she says art, you know, after that long conversation about, he, he's like, I want to talk about something. I want to talk about something with you. And she's like, I don't want to talk to you. You know, this beautiful woven, gorgeous scene that's all about the inner life of this woman. And then I heard like Paul Schrader talk about that scene once and it was like so dark, you know, like it was just like, yeah, I mean, how could this like empty bag of bones graveyard have any interest in, you know, and I was like, whoa, like you totally missed what's in that moment for this woman. And part of it is just because your eye is trained to not care. You know, your soul is trained to not care. And so that's why I get up on my high horse and my soapbox on Twitter every once in a while to kind of go like, why don't we take a look at at how the one of the reasons that a secretary will, will stay with people for a long period of time or a certain group of people for a long period of time is because it is their taxi driver. You know, like that is a movie that I saw myself in that I watched and I thought, yeah, I don't want to marry a boy person like you know like, I was like I was like wait I do kind of want to be like hurt but at the same time loved but at the same time I don't want to be disrespected and I don't want to be you know assaulted you know what I mean like I don't want to be punished for my sexuality I also don't want to be punished for transgressions I also if I make a mistake and and go past my boundaries which is the thing that's so beautiful about that movie as opposed to like a 50 shades of gray you know like is that the movie is about her figuring out what her boundaries are it's her going mm, I don't think I feel comfortable with that and then she's like well I guess I do feel comfortable with this thing what a beautiful thing to look into you know what I mean and and to explore and all of that kind of stuff but I think if it just isn't reflected, okay, I've been talking too much. That's it. I, 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 that's all I have to say. It's funny. This is the third or the fourth time that Secretary has come up on the podcast, and we've only taped like less than a dozen episodes so far. I think that movie is particularly resonant for, you know, women kind of in a certain age group because you never get to see any other movie. It would have been about the James Spader character. And it's like, how boring is that? And I love James Spader. Like, I don't want to see the movie from his perspective. You have to do this thread on The Graduate and The yeah. Heartbreak Kid because you can take every Elaine movie, every Elaine May movie and be like, oh, Ishtar should have been better received. A New Leaf should have been better received. Oh, yes, that's true. Yeah. I also have a full, I, I, I will go on to it at some point because like I have a full thing that I want to talk to Mike Nichols, who is in fact deceased about, which is like, the fact that Mrs. Robinson is Elaine May, like everything that she does is Elaine May bits from their thing, you know, from their stuff. So I'm like, what are you trying to say, buddy? Like, what's going on? So the most indelible, most iconic part of your movie is your female counterpart. You know what I mean? Like, that's what no, you have to say? It's true. It's All like right, we cool. talk about Harold awesome. and Maude, but nobody wants to talk about A New Leaf. It's like you can do so many of these, like, examples through history of just, like, why is this the movie we glommed onto? And it's because of that sort of hetero, white, male, Western canon, baby. <laughs> we love it. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, like, no, 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 yeah, right. so I'm going I'm I'm to pivot to some questions about the canon, actually. Are there any films in the canon that you just flat refuse to watch? You're just like, nope, not, no interest, not going to do it. In the, in the canon? Quote, canon, air quotes, canon. Because, you know. Oh, the, the, like yeah, the, movies the movies that we're all supposed, supposed to watch. watch. Is there anything in that, in that thing where you're just like, yes. nope, not happening? No interest. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, 
God. You know, I was very contrary for a long, I mean, I, I took a long time to watch the, the Godfathers. I, I took a long time to do that. I finally watched them in my twenties. Um, I didn't refuse to, but, but I, there, I did have like a fun time saying like, I'm not going to watch that. It looks stupid. You know, and everyone's like, the Godfather looks stupid. Like, shut the fuck up. You're an idiot. And then of course I watched them and I was right, like, okay, and, that, and that's the follow-up like question is of the ones that you resisted <laughs> and eventually watched, which were the ones where you were like, oh, right. Yes. I would say, I would say honestly, more often what I find is that the, is that the kind of discourse movies, like what I would find more often is that the discourse movies are the ones that I'm like, I cannot mm. make it through this. You know what I mean? Which I I know we're not supposed to talk shit about mm. our peers or whatever, but like I find myself doing that more often where if something starts to feel like cultural jury duty to see, I'm like, I, I don't have time. I just, how many things am I supposed to watch? You know, like how am I supposed to get through another movie about, you I've know, never no. heard the term cultural jury duty before, but I will be stealing it. <laughs> I will. I will give you attribution. Yeah, doesn't it, it feel is, like it? That is a term of art that will become part of the culture within the year. I am promising. Oh yeah, please help Honestly, me out. Honestly, I'm, I'm gonna. I'm, I'm, I, I will take no, it always without <laughs> promote always with it. attribution. But cultural jury duty. Is I mean, honestly, you could build an entire podcast around that. Oh, just like what I have right. to watch now. I got to watch this fucking thing. You know, it's like great. You know, I'm trying to think. There was something I recently watched that I was like, excuse me. Oh, yeah, no, I we can't talk, talk shit, shit though. We, about we, we, we try to be that, positive. That's yeah. that's, that's usually what it question. is. I'm gonna that's flip usually the cultural what it is. Duty question. Yeah. Like, I think the opposite of cultural duty, jury duty, are the things that people think of as guilty pleasures. So, like, what what's a movie that everybody thinks is terrible that you're just like, you're all wrong. This is a masterpiece. I love it. Yep. Period. Go away. Well, I mean, oh God, I have a real soft spot for these. Are not necessarily considered bad movies, but like the like the ba- like Paul Verhoeven. Yeah, you're is talking Kate's language right now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I am down. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, you know, I think I just, it's the kind of thing I'm like, just hang in there. Just hang in there. (laughs) It's just like, and the misses are misses, you know, and the hits are hits. Like, it's just like, there's some, it's not quite an answer to your question, but like, show girls, you're like, I mean, I think that was the movie I realized I was gay was when I watched that movie. I was like, didn't we all? (laughs) Yeah. I was was like, Kate Hagen, leave it to you. No, it's funny. I was just having a conversation with one of my queer female friends and we were like, who's no man? Who's Crystal in this scenario? And like arguing about who is who. (laughs) It's like, which one are you? Uh, No, Verhoeven, ironically enough, has come up a number of times on this podcast as well. Because it's like, you know, you're presented showgirls. It's like, this movie is bad. And then you watch it. You're like, look at the craft on display here. I mean, it's kind of a great movie. I mean, I know it's a bit like also now very in to say that that yeah. you like that movie now, but like, you know, but but and it's also very. I think he's time has been kind to his yeah. canon in terms of like Starship Troopers and Black Book and and L, which was fant- absolutely fantastic. I mean, L was incredible. You know, like one of the best movies I saw that year. You know, and th- that was a movie I was like, why didn't anyone fucking tell me about that? Like, why was everybody telling me to go see like you know I don't know what whatever else was coming out that year? Like The Artist, you know, and I'm like, I don't fucking care about The Artist. Like, I don't care. You know, like I want to I want to watch like, you know, I want to watch like, I don't know, something fucking weird. You know, a Cronenberg too was like a big one for me. I guess he's a, a, also huge hits, huge misses, you know, like I was just rewatching Dead Ringers. I was like, this movie sucks. You know, I was like, this movie's bad. And I was like, but I love this movie. <laughs> like, you know, like, it's just like, not a good movie, but it's like fantastic. I also, I was rewatching a lot of John Carpenter recently too. I love him. I love him. Again, these are all white males. So sad, but that's the truth. Whatever. Um, all right. Next next sort of uh, canon question. So as you know, because we might have met right around this time, I, worked, I used to work for Sidney Pollack in the year before he died. And he yes. often said that there was only yeah. two subjects he was interested in making movies about, love and war, because we're no closer to understanding those two things in the thousands of years of human history than we were at the beginning, which begets this question. Favorite movie about love, favorite movie about war? Ooh, favorite movie about war. I mean, I know I mentioned it before, but I don't know if it gets better than Bridge on the River Kwai. Like, I just don't know if it gets better than that. Like, every, every, it's such a, um, it's weirdly such a um, empathetic movie. It's a movie that, 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 that shows every aspect of it. 
every every um, point of view is shown at some point. You know, like it, it's never the 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 insanity of the entire thing is on display in that movie. And yet it is still so perfectly, you know, kind of crafted as a piece of entertainment that you barely even notice that that's what you're consuming. And so in a way, I, I really would nominate that one because the thing that I always think about in that movie, and I can't remember the name of the character, but it's the guy, it's not William Holden, but it's like the guy that William Holden is like hiking up the mountain with. And that guy gets like a foot infection and he keeps like trying to get up the mountain and he like can't, like there's just... <laughs> I'm not going to re tell you what the movie's about, but I just, the, the, when I remember watching it for like the 17,000th time when I was in college and, or, you know, in my twenties and thinking like, yeah, this is, this, this is war. This is war. Like this is what war is just this, you know, fucking fungus, you know, bacteria eating away at your shoe, at your foot, you know, and you still have to go up this mountain, you know, like, it's just, what, what is this even, where are we even going with this? Like, what is happening? You know, there's, People are dying and sacrificing themselves for ideological arguments that they're not that they are not interested in having um, when they are on that level of I just need to survive, you know. Like, and the way Alec Guinness's character is portrayed, the way that um, even the people his captors are portrayed in that movie—I don't know. I, I just love that movie. I love Doctor Strangelove too. I that's probably one that gets that said a lot. But yeah. what a beautifully what a, I mean, it's a beautiful anti-war movie. It's just like, but I like Kwai because I feel like it's just—it's an anti-war movie, but it's not one that you kind of realize is an anti-war movie until like you know about three fourths of the way through. You're like, oh, how about how about love stories? <laughs> No, movie movies about love. I want to make that distinction because they don't have to be love stories because movies about love can be – movies about love, they can be love stories if that's your favorite thing, but they don't have to be. There's movies about love. It's funny because I'm not I, – I used to be a very romantic person when I was little um, and younger, um, and now I just have a cold, dead heart. Uh, so, you know, I, I can't even think of any right now. But you know what I'll say is the one that really made me happy was Amelie. That was the one that I was like, yay. You know? <laughs> Even the tone of the yay I have, is I have like, no notes. Hey, good job. No notes. You know, it's and it's Janae, so it's yeah. really clever and cute. And, you know, like it's it's it kind of got crazy overblown in like 2001 or 2002, whenever it came out here. But it holds up. I've rewatched it and it's cute. It's just like it just kind of plays with both. It, it kind of breaks down your cynicism yeah. over the course of like, you know, I think if you're a person that's not going to like it, you're just not going to like it. But I consider myself to be an expert cynicist. Is that a word? Cynic? Cynic. Expert cynic. And um, and that movie always kind of breaks me down in a way. All right, Russian Doll. Oh, and 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 the darker the darker version is Woman Under the Influence. Like that's the other one. Great answer. Because I think that you know you know Jenna is always kind of pushed out as like the highlight of the, that movie, and she is. But I think her the movie is really her and Peter, and the two of them trying to navigate that relationship and trying to figure out how they're going to stay together because they very clearly love each other. You know, like they very clearly are obsessed with each other, and and yet they're like, how are you we get to the exist? end of that movie and you're like, am yeah. I in love with Peter Falk? What has this movie done to me? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's weird. Yeah, it's weird. You're like, oh, God. Speaking of practice cynics, I want to talk a bit about Russian Doll, which was one of the most interesting, narrative, emotional, emotionally complex pieces of art, I think, in the last 10 years. I feel like. I legit thought you were going to pick. I thought you were going to say, speaking of female Peter Falk. Um, Russian Doll. That's interesting. Oh, yeah. I legit, I legit yeah, thought Natasha that was going to be the pivot, and I just needed to inject it there. Hi, Natasha. Speaking of, and by the way, you know, yeah, by the way. But what it, I exactly. loved about Russian Doll is every time I was like, I got this, I got this figured out, there'd be another swerve or another surprise. Throughout the writing process, how did you, Aww. Natasha Leone, Amy Poehler, how did you keep that emotional core with Nadia and Alan, even as you're pulling off this incredibly complicated, I have to imagine, physical production schedule that is playing so much with our concept of time and a location and where we are in space? What was that? I have to imagine that was very challenging. It was. I mean, it was very hard. It was not, I mean, everybody just thought we were crazy, you know, especially once we got into production and we were like, <laughs> loop A, loop B, loop AA, loop BB. Like, you know, it's just like, everybody was like, wait, what? Like, you know, what are you talking about? Like, um, 
it just, it was a, it was a huge undertaking that I don't think would have worked without everybody operating to the height of their intelligence, which includes like all of the writers in the room, um, Jamie Babbitt, who direct, you know, Natasha and I directed the show and then Jamie Babbitt was the other director. Um, uh, all of our, uh, designers. I mean, like, that's the thing, like, like the stuff, like a lot of the stuff that you went with as a viewer were things that we didn't even say because visually our designers had planned out so meticulously what they were going to incorporate with each character. So like, you know, nothing made me happier than when Chris Teague, Jen Rogan and, and um, Michael Bricker won Emmys for the show because they really are truly, you know, a huge part of why you can go with that show and not get lost because there are shapes that are attributed to each characters because of, because of Michael Bricker. There are colors that are attributed to each character because of Chris and Jen's decisions. You know, like it's like, there's a reason that you can tell the different Nadia's and the different Allen's apart because of choices that Jen made. Like, you know, it just, it's so I don't think that type of thing happens unless you luck out with a with a team that is like keeping you honest and just as excited about the insanity as you are. And so so there's that part of it. But I think the kind of emotional anchor that we kept coming back to, you know, I can't speak for Natasha, but I would say that for me it was a version of that Jack running after Danny thing. Like, you know, I just feel like Truffaut says that every filmmaker makes you know, makes a film, breaks it apart, and makes a, makes the same film again. You know, like, and so I feel like I've been kind of once I started working on Russian Doll, I kind of had embraced the fact that I was always telling the same story, which is that Big Leslie is trying to kill Little Leslie, so we have to save her. <laughs> like, you know, like so we gotta we gotta do something. You know, like so to me, the concept of Nadia's character being stuck in a loop of her own psychological making, you know, like we can't speak to, we went back and forth a lot on like, is there a physical thing that's happening? Is there a blah, blah, but really it felt like this should just be a psychological story. Like this should just, it's happening. We don't know why we're going to find out later. People will watch because they're interested, you know? And for me, the key was always going to be like, she has to solve her own problem. And the way she's going to, what was really the big aha moment was when we figured out the way to solve your problem is to solve someone else's problem. Like that was like, oh my God, I might even get emotional to talk about it. But that was when we were all like, oh my God, that's the key, you know? Like, and so as long as we could kind of come back to the moment a character goes inside, they're going to start looping. You know, the moment they start looking out, they're going to kind of like, you know, they're going to start looping together or they're going to, you know, we're going to get a little, they're going to get a little further this time or they're going to so on and so forth. And so that became my North Star, at least, um, especially once we started shooting. So we have two more questions. I'm going to ask uh, the first, but I already know the answer, which is, what is the single image <laughs> from a film that has stayed with you the longest? <laughs> Might it be the uh, the maze sequence in, in The Shining? Am I guessing right? All yeah. right, so we, we, can, we can move... I mean, I we think can move so. on from that question we can move and let on. Kate ask our, our final out. So, big final question. <laughs> uh, if you could screen a movie simultaneously for the entirety of planet Earth, ignoring time zones, what film would you pick for the betterment of humanity? Back to the Future. Oh, great answer. Back to the Future. Is there a specific reason the why? It's that a was, like, that movie. was an immediate answer, and it's a great answer, but I'm curious why. Do you know why? Because Back to the Future is an eight-quadrant movie. Like, there is no one that is not represented or heard in Back to the Future. You know what I mean? Like, it's like old people, young people, women, men. Like, you know, I mean, if anything, the film's kind of, you know, doesn't have the most yeah, diverse say, cast. I don't really you know? feel like, spoken for in Back to the Future, but it was the first movie I ever saw in a theater. Yeah. It was. was it? I don't know. To me, it's a perfect movie. It's truly a perfect movie. It's, it's you know, is it is it the best movie? Is it like the, is it the movie? You know, like, is it the movie that we should give an Oscar to? No, but it is a perfect movie. It is a perfect, you are never given a piece of information you do not need in that movie. There is never a moment of like, let's just banter. Do you know what I mean? Like, it is just, boom, ev- everything is, the way that Zemeckis directed that movie is psychotic. Like it does not make any sense. Like there is no coverage in that movie. That movie is one after one after one like of just like 
brilliant blocking, you know, like it's just, there's also, if you know as much about the backstory of that movie as I do, which is, I'm not going to bore you guys with, but so much of the movie should not have happened. You know what I mean? Like so much of it was an accident that not only is a perfect movie, it's also kind of a miracle. And so like to, if I were given an opportunity to screen a movie for everyone ever, do you know what I mean? Like I would want to give them all as much joy as possible. And so to me, that movie is Back to the Future. And if you, even if you don't get into the movie, you can dance along to the Johnny B. Good sequence. And like, I still think it'll brighten your day, you know? So like, but, um, but yeah, I love that. But I joke, but one last, one last joke before I let you guys uh, mercifully get away from me is that I was joking on the set of Russian Doll. I was like, somebody said, what are your, what's your favorite movie? And I said, I have three. And they were like, what's your three favorite movies? I said, The Shining, The Apartment, and Back to the Future. And I was like, someday I'll make a movie as good as as one of those. And then they said, you just made a TV show that's all three of them. <laughs> and I was like, that's oh, really wow. damn. <laughs> yeah. And- I was like, oh, that's that's true. I didn't realize that. I kind of like, well, what am I going to do now? I think I'll just go hang out with my that cat in quarantine is, uh, and pretend I'm the writing. the perfect way to close. <laughs> no, thank you for having me. I hope you can put that together somehow. Oh, my God. That was great, Leslie. Leslie, thank you. From Luminary, The Blacklist Podcast is a production of The Blacklist and Ninth Planet Audio. Our executive producers are me, Franklin Leonard, Kate Hagan, Han Sani, and Jimmy Miller. Gabrielle Horton is our lead producer. Nicholas Patel composed our theme music, and this episode was edited and mixed by Kevin Liu. You can find me on Twitter at Franklin Leonard, at Franklin J. Leonard on Instagram. Kate is that Hagen girl, girl, G-R-R-L, on both. And we, The Blacklist, are the, T-H-E-B-L-C-K-L-S-T. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 